We ready to dig in this morning? I hope so. Turn to the person next to you, please. Give them a big smile and, and ask them this question. Don't you wish you looked as good as I do today? How can I grow in my love for God? And we are in ministry. And we are the ones encouraging other people to love God more. And as we heard yesterday in one of the workshops with Brother Ennis, you can't love God without knowing God. You've got to know him well, right? And so this whole concept, how can I grow my love for the Lord? In much of my counseling, I always go back to this one simple truth. So once again, I'm sitting with a young couple, and he's a totally addicted to porn, and, and his wife is there, and she knows it. And I said, I just looked at the guy and said, well, just tell me, what, what, why do you, you want to get victory over this? He says, because I feel like a jerk. So why else? He said, because my wife gets mad at me. Anything else? Yeah, because if my kids find out, I'll really be embarrassed. Any other reason? Yeah, I, I might even lose my job if they know what's going on. I said, sir, there's no way you'll ever have victory because you're so selfish. Here you didn't mention one time your love for God or your love for your wife. And as I said yesterday, we do what we love. We, th- we, we, we talk about what we think about, and we think about what we love. And you hang around with somebody very long, you will find out what they love. We talk about what we think about. We think about what we love. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And understanding that this heart, everything that comes from that. So if, if I'm going to do right, and I'm going to be faithful to God and faithful to my wife and faithful to my family, then I need to have a motivation to do right. Not just the negatives that I don't get in trouble, get embarrassed, get, lose my job. It's got to be far, far more than that. And honestly, it is as simple as the greatest commandment of all. You see it there listed in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord God is one God. He is. And we need to love him with all our heart and all our soul and our mind. So, if we're to increase in our love for God, how do we do this? Three points, very simple, okay? Number one, make an effort to increase in your knowledge of God. Say it with me. Make an effort to increase. Make it a priority in your life. Even as a pastor, not just to prepare to preach a message, not just to read because you've got to get through the Bible, but you're simply digging into the Word of God to do what? To get to know God better. Let's do a sword drill, okay? First one to get to Jeremiah 9. Turn, stand up. Jeremiah 9, 23. Stand up, and you're going to read for us verses 23 and 24. Bible's up. Bible's at attention. Go. Okay? As soon as you got the passage and you're ready to read it out loud, okay? You've got to see that you have it. Come on, folks. Jump up. Be excited about God's Word. I'll point to you if you don't stand. Thank you, sir. No, 22. Or yes, 23 and 24. You're correct. I'm sorry. I was thinking it was 22. No, you're good. I hope. Wow. 
wonderful. And how does that passage start out? Thus saith the Lord. You can stop right there. This is what God says. And if God said it, he wants us to know it. It was so important to God that he asked Jeremiah to write it down for us. Let not the rich man, the wise man, or the mighty man do what? Glory. The word means to boast, to brag, to find accomplishment in. Don't brag. Just in your wisdom and your intelligence and even standing up to preach, saying, let me show you my great knowledge and everything I know. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. I mean, it's good to stay physically fit, and I think it's very important, and it gives good discipline. But we don't just have to run around and brag about, you know, here's our age, and I can still do that, and I'm let not the rich man glory in his riches. I don't know if any of us have a real problem with that one, okay? Although we're very, very rich in God's eyes, aren't we? Because we have the riches of Christ. So we have nothing to boast or brag about in regards to physical things and our wisdom, our money. But let him that boasts, let him that brag, do it in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. The greatest, greatest compliment that any of your church members can give you guys, wow, our pastor really knows God. Yeah. Nothing else. Not your communication skills, not your ability to lead. That it has been just like John and Peter. It's very obvious you spent time with God. It's huge. But here's another concept on making an effort to increase in your knowledge of God. Somebody read for me 2 Peter 1, 2. As soon as you get it, Brian, stand up and read it good and loud, okay? Of course, if you're going to read it, it's going to be good and loud, okay? So stand up and read it good and loud for us. 2 Peter, that's right after 1 Peter, 1, 2. Okay, grace and peace be multiplied to you through what? The knowledge of God. Now, Pastor Dan told me that the pastors of Northern California, part of this concept, your, your group here, are probably amongst the most intelligent men he's ever met in his whole life, okay? So, I'm going to test everybody. You ready? Everybody, two plus two, plus two, plus two, plus two, plus two, plus two, plus two. Plus two, plus two, 20. Okay, good. There, they got it. All right, let's just get a step up a notch. Let's now multiply. Ready? Two times two, times two, times two, times two, times two, times two, times two. It's getting a little fuzzy in here. Okay, we're at 256. Times two, 512. Times two, 1,024. Times two, 2,048. So I'm asking you right now, all of us, what do you want? Do you want 20 handfuls of God's grace at divine enablement? Do you want 20 handfuls of God's peace at calm cheerfulness of life? Or do you want 2,048 handfuls of it? You can have 2,048. How? Where does it come from? Through the knowledge of of God. Our entire lives we should pursue the knowledge of God. One more. Ephesians 5.1. Somebody read that for me. If you happen to be here and you have three kids that are on the camps. I say campsite. I'm sorry. I'm a camp director. On the church property, would you please stand? 
and read for us Ephesians 5 1. Okay, thank you. Imitators, followers of God. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. So in one way, God wants us to get like little kids again. Because when little kids go to school, especially first, second grade, like your little kids, they're pretty excited about it. They're learning how to read and all this fun stuff. So we almost have to crawl back and do it that way. I love that passage, be therefore followers of God as dear children. Be is an action word. Be something. Be being. Be active. Don't be satisfied not to be being. I get asked a lot, you know, regarding apathy. Because if you're an active Christian, you don't even know how to spell the word apathy. And I, they ask, how do you deal with apathetic teens? I say, I've never met one. They're very passionate about not caring, okay? So, be. Be being. Be ye. Now, that's the plural form of you, okay? In case you didn't know that, it is. Now, I, I spent 30 years in North Carolina at the Wilds. And then God directed Amber and I to go to New England and start over. Now, we've been up there for 14 years. And so I am officially bilingual now, okay? Because I live in the South, and now I live in New England. And I go to Bahaba, y'all, okay? So I got them both down. So in the South, the plural form of ye is all y'all. Say it with me, all y'all. So in other words, instead of saying good morning, they say, all y'all doing right, son? But it's the same thing, same thing, okay? But when God asked Paul to put a plural, he, he meant for that to be a plural. There's not one of us of any age or any, even whether you're the pastor, the pastor's wife, former pastor, there's none of us in this room that can say that verse doesn't apply to us. Be therefore... And you guys have all taught, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you always look back to see what it is, therefore. And Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, come on. It's like a treasure chest. You just start digging through, or if you're little tiny kids, like a toy box. You ever watch little kids and get a toy out, and they play with it a while? Then they set aside and get something else out and look at it for a while? And that's what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is like, the forgiveness of sins in chapter 1, verse 7. Being saved by the grace of God in chapter 2, 8, and 9. Being filled with his strong and strengthened with his might in chapter 3, and on and on and on. And he says, be therefore, since God has saved us, redeemed us, forgiven us, God says, I have something I want you to do. I want you to be an imitator, a follower of God. So if you make an effort to increase in your knowledge of God, you cannot imitate anything that you don't know well. If you want to imitate someone or something, you've got to study them, right? How they walk, how they talk, everything about them. There's good imitations in life and bad imitations in life. Like, for instance, soft drinks. I'm told the only soft drink we'll drink in heaven is Dr. Pepper. And I, my, wife, my wife says it tastes like carbonated prune juice, okay? But... And if you know Morris Gleiser, he's addicted to diet Dr. Pepper. Got it? I actually have a little full diet Dr. Pepper down in my basement, my study. Uh, and every time I see it, I pray for Morris, all right? So, but, okay. Is there an imitation to that? Yeah. Mr. Pip. He's not even a doctor yet, okay? So, it doesn't make sense. But if you really, really, really want to imitate, you've got to study hard. So, I'm on a plane in, in Manchester, and um, 
I'm sitting there and sitting there waiting to take off Manchester, New Hampshire, probably for Detroit, and then go preach somewhere. We're sitting and sitting and sitting. I had a yellow tablet out, and I was working on some staff training, and I was trying to draw this, okay, and I'll explain it in a minute. But finally, I asked the flight attendant, uh, I'm going to miss my connection. Are we going to leave soon? She says, well, we do have a problem. I said, what's that? She said, we have a runaway. I said, what's a runaway? 15-year-old girl ran away from home. Police caught her in New Hampshire, and they were going to bring her on the plane. She was in the airport. Bring her on the plane, and then when we get to Detroit, she said, you're going to have to sit there until they come and get her and take her off. It wasn't a big plane. There were two empty seats in front of me and then one right next to me. So I quick moved over against the window. I said, Lord, have her sit by me. So this girl comes in. Oh, my word. You talk about an attitude. She had an attitude. She just looked at the one seat, looked at the other, and looked at me, looked at the seat, and plopped down right next to me. I said, hey, how you doing? Whatever. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> and then I did. I ignored her. And I did. And I just was working on this. And I did. I drew the tree. And I put the little apples in it. And she's looking at me like going, this guy is like really weird. <laughs> sitting here drawing the tree. And then very slowly, very methodically, I, I just started putting little call-outs out, like hurt and unloved and lonely, unforgivable and fearful, depressed, guilty, angry, bitter, hopeless, suicidal. Just one at a time. Then I'd think about it and what kids are going through and just another one, slowly. And after the longest time, I remember the girl looked over at me and she said, what's that? I said, it's a tree. I really did. She said, no, really, what is it? I said, I know I can't draw, but it really is a tree. But then I asked her this, what does it look like to you? You know what she said? She said, it looks like me. So a girl was brought to camp. She had already tried to commit suicide three times. She was 17. The third time she tried to commit suicide, ended up in the hospital, and some kids from a church near there went and visited her and befriended her invited her to youth group. She started coming. She trusted Christ. And now she's at camp. Kids, teens, invite your friends to church. Okay, they're going to get saved. They wanted me to meet with her because of the suicide attempts. And I showed her the same thing. And she said the same thing. I said, what does it look like? She said, it looks like me. And these kids were, and by the way, probably hundreds of others that I've shared this with. But you know what is sad about this thing? Because here I am standing, this is what they call a pastor's conference. And many of you are pastors and pastor's wives, and we are in the ministry, and we are serving. And I know all of you are not vocationally in full-time service, but here we are. Many of you have been saved for, I don't know, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And still, we can sit here and you go, Rand, whoa, kind of looks like me. Because I often feel lonely, hurt. If people really, really knew me, oh, I, I don't know if they'd ever forgive me. I feel guilty often. I, I, I can't say I'm angry, but I really struggle with bitterness in my heart. I'm not suicidal, but sometimes it feels like life is just hopeless. And whether or not you have some of this fruit in your life, I guarantee you, Sunday morning, when you stand to preach to your people, they do. Because we got hurting people out there. And if I was at one of your churches, I would just simply say this. If this is the fruit in your life, 
if this is you, and only you know that, I have no idea, but if this is you, then I already know something about your theology. In other words, I already know some of the things that you believe about God. Because you believe that God doesn't love me. And maybe you think God is a God of love, but he loves those really good people more than me. Those people are really faithful in church and really do right and have their devotions every day. I know he's a God of love, but why would he love me? I don't love me. Why would God love me? Or you might believe something like this. God would never, ever forgive me. And many have dark, secret lives that they just hope nobody finds out. Forgetting that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, God sees, and get this, he still loves us. Wow. Or, I'm all alone. There's no reason to live. God doesn't care. I just want to die, and God's too busy to mess with me, and it's like God is a thousand miles away. Why? Why do we even as Christians or believers, why would we ever stop and actually believe these? And by the way, every single one that I put up there, everyone is a lie. Because Satan has not changed his battle plan since the Garden of Eden. All he's trying to do is to get us to stop believing that God is who he says he is. And if this is true in your life, and you believe that God doesn't love me and never forgive me, he doesn't care, then you don't know God. I am not saying that you're not trusting Christ for your salvation. And I am saying that you probably know about God, but you don't know him. You get some facts up there that you learn from a book or from preaching or teaching, Awana, Sunday school. But you have not that, that, that experiential knowledge that is such a joy to have in the Christian life. Why? Why do so many of, even people in our churches think this way? I did for years. I was raised in an incredibly angry home. My father's probably one of the most angry men I've ever known. And it was tough. It was tough. I, I, I just thought every kid in the world grew up this way. And as I mentioned the other day, I was raised then by my grandparents for many years. And granddad was an alcoholic. And there's all kinds of sad stories about that. It was tough. But I wanted to be different. Sadly, my goal in life was to be the opposite of my dad. And what I was doing is turning into my dad, okay? And uh, even though I didn't want that. So I went to Bob Jones University, again, as I mentioned, as a plumber to work and just go in the mission field. And one thing turned out, we ended up at the wilds to work maintenance. And then um, we had our son, Josh. And then we had the sec our second little boy died at birth. He's buried in a cemetery not, not far from the entrance to the wilds there in North Carolina. And then we were expecting our next one and. I still remember when Amber came back from the doctor. She was crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, we're going to lose this one too. I'm just telling you, folks, I'm as normal as they come. I got so angry with God. I remember walking up that road and saying, come on, God. Can't you ever be pleased with me? Why are you so angry? I'm working like 14, 15 hours a day. You still can't be pleased. When I got home, I plopped in the chair, and I looked at Amber. I said, God's mad about something. You know what Amber said? 
Amber said, no, he's not. He doesn't care. He is a thousand miles away. Now, I was blinded to my problem. I was. But when Amber said that, I thought, hun, hun, we don't know God. We only know about God. We are already graduates of a Bible college. We were working at a Christian camp. I was 27. I said, hun, we don't know God. I at least knew 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care in him for he cares for you. Why would we think this way? You see, I was raised in a very angry home. God was angry with me. For Amber, some teenager had her. She was put in foster care. She was adopted out of that. And when she was only seven, her daddy died. And her mom never got married again. Amber grew up without a dad. He was a thousand miles away. Now, I'm your friend. But you know where our kids get their concept of God? From you, Dad. Yeah. Somehow they visualize their heavenly father to be exactly like their earthly father. And for some of your families, it is wonderful. It is good. And for some, it's not. We must understand that when our kids grow up with the wrong concept of God, not a biblical concept of God, okay? We have to understand that a wrong and improper view of God, it produces bad fruit. So you know what we try to do? Instead of being pastors, trusting the word of God and doing what God says to increase in the knowledge of him, we become behavioral psychologists and try to fix everybody's problems and hurts. We try to polish up the fruit. Make it look better. Oh, here's how you deal with depression. Here's how you deal with your anger. And, and, and it's still rotten inside. And then we pick the fruit because it's so bad. And guess what grows back? The same thing. Because we haven't changed our belief system, the root system. Seriously. It still comes down to we believe what we believe and do what we do because of how well we know or don't know our God. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do. I was a mess. Angry. She's come to my father. I'm being very open, put my fist through the wall at home. And do you know how stupid that is? If you miss the Joyce, it helps. I mean, do you know? You put your fist through. Okay. So here I am living in staff housing. There's a hole in the wall in the bedroom. And I'm thinking, ah, why I can't get a hold of this anger? And and you got to fix it. And if you ever, ever worked with drywall mud, it is really hard to get that real smooth, okay? And once you do get it smooth, you got to paint it. But that paint's not going to match because the other paint is already faded because of the sun. So you got to paint the room and then the hallway. you got to paint the living room. you got to buy new furniture. you got to get a new car because you put your business so foolish, okay? I said, I did. I was scared. And I wasn't raised in these squeaky clean, good little homes. And I thought, Lord, I'm going to lose Amber. I'm going to lose my ministry if they know I cannot get a hold of this. But I didn't try to fix my anger. My dear friend Ken Collier says, you need to get to know God. Now, people pay a lot of money and go hours for all kinds of counseling. You know what my counsel was? You need to get to know God. Took about 10 seconds. 
So how do you get to know God? Okay, David is a man after God's own heart. I thought, I'm gonna, David had his problems. I have my problems. I'm going to go to the book of Psalms and get to know God. And so I got up extra early. Now, again, I was broken. I was scared. I didn't want to lose Amber. I didn't want to lose my ministry. I did love God. I just knew so little. And so I got up exceedingly early at 5 o'clock, 5.30 to 7.30, in the book of Psalms. took me 18 months to get through Psalms. I was just working maintenance. I wasn't preaching and all that at the time. And, and I would. I'd spend two hours. And I'd write down, this is what it, God is my blank or my God is blank. And then I'd write the verse out and then a little paragraph on how it applied to me. God is my high tower. God is my shepherd. My God is strong. My God is patient. Ooh. With me? I'm telling you, my life started to change. I started to see how wonderful and forgiving and holy and just that God really was. And I'd write these down and it got to the point where two hours almost wasn't enough. I wanted to learn more and more about God. My life started to change. Amber says, wow, you're different. After just six months, when you're raised in a tough home and you're told you're nothing. I never heard the words I love you ever growing up, ever. And when you grow up that way, you think you're nothing, okay? And, and you don't laugh, you don't cry, you just kind of hold all your emotions inside. Now all of a sudden I'm getting to know God and God's starting to change me. Now I get choked up at supermarket openings, okay? I mean, it's totally different. Because I got to know who God is all about. But I, I, I want you to know this is not the only tree that I show these kids that I counsel. I show them this one too. Where the fruit is loving and happy and unselfish and joyful and content. Secure, peaceful, kind, self-controlled, patient, respectful. Hey, Dad, wouldn't it be cool if when your kids go off to college and they're just sitting around the dorm room and they get talking about home and your son says, oh, you ought to meet my dad. My dad has got to be one of the most kind, patient men I have ever or your daughter's there in college with her friends and they get talking about home and get talking about mom and she says, my mom, oh, the most loving, unselfish, joyful person I've ever known in my life. Can be. But where does this come from? Once again, it comes from your belief system, your theology. You truly believe that God loves me. In spite of my difficulties and weaknesses, God loves me. How many of you believe God loves you? You've been singing it since you were three. Sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible. Very good. You got it, okay? You also believe that God promises to forgive me. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful. God is faithful. And he is just because he's already paid for it. It's a just thing as a judge for him to forgive because it's already been paid for. And by the way, if we confess, homo logeo, homo, homo the same logeo to say, if we agree with God, say the same thing about our sin that God does, that's true confession. God hates it and separates from it. Hates it and separates from it. Do you know God's always there for me? Always. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I have a purpose in life and 
God really does care and God helps me and God is in control of my life and God wants the best for my life. Say it with me. God wants the best for my life. And you realize that even as I work with teens, when they get a hold of this simple truth, God wants the best for me. He has gifted me. He's given me gifts. He's given me a direction. He's saved me. And he has a purpose for my life. Whoa. Now they're not just going to waste their lives. They're going to go after that goal that God puts within their heart. And for all of us, when you get the confidence and know your God for who he is, a right and a proper view of God produces good fruit. And this all comes from getting to know your God. Grace and peace multiplied you through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Whatsoever, I mean, when it talks about uh, the rich man, the wise man, don't glory in all those, but you glory in this. What? That you understand and know God. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe what? To do all that's written therein. You said, but Rand, I've got to be successful, and, and I've got to be prosperous. No, that's not our goal. But God will give that to you. Then that way, your way will be prosperous. Then you'll have good success. Let God take care of that. You spend your life digging into his precious word, okay? How do I grow in my love for the Lord? If I talk about what I think about and I think about what I love, how do you do this? Number one, increase your knowledge of God. This is so basic. Get to know your God. But number two, and this is one we miss, miss often, understand who you were, who you are, and who you're capable of being. What are we talking about here? When I first went to the wilds of New England, 2009, we, we rented camps a number of years before that. But my first year, we had this staff, and most of the summer staff were kids from New England. Now, New England is black and white. You're a Christian or you're not. It's not like living in the South where everybody is kind of a Christian, if you know what I'm talking about, and everybody goes to church. Not New England. You are in or you're out. But the kids that were raised in church and were Christians, they knew they were different. And they actually knew that they were, quote-unquote, good kids, and they didn't do the real bad things that other kids did, and they stayed away from the drugs and the immorality, and they actually thought they were pretty good, like some of us in here. Because we're not as bad as. And we didn't do the really, really bad things when we were growing up. Who loves the most? Those who are forgiven the most. And I think we forget who we were before salvation. You say, but Rand, I was five. I was seven. Okay. Then don't forget who you are capable of being. It's not just what God saved me from in the past. It's by his grace what he saved me from. In the future, and by his grace, I don't get divorced. And by his grace, I don't mess around with porn. And I don't get into drugs. Only because of his grace. Because my flesh, my selfishness, my wickedness wants to do all bad things. And yet the grace of God, he saves us. He keeps us from so many of these things. Are we capable of all these? Oh, yeah. 
I could stand here for the next two hours and give you illustrations of people who have grown up in this world and now are divorced and messed up and living in terrible, terrible sin. And you're just as capable, and so am I, aside from the grace of God. So we do this little, I know I'm not perfect, but for all of sin and come short of God's glory or God's magnificent perfection, his glorious perfection, we can't be perfect, okay? But don't use that for an excuse. There should never be, but it's just, I know I'm not as mature as I should be, but I need to be growing. Or how about this? Am I more like the Pharisee or the prostitute? We got to ask ourselves that. Obviously, this comes from Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited by a bunch of preachers, we could say, and they're going to have this little meal to get together, and he comes. They don't greet him. They don't shake his hand. They don't take his coat. They don't, as they would do back then, give water to wash his feet. He just kind of walks in. And as they're all there, and, and if you remember when they would eat, they didn't have tables like we have with chairs. The tables were just about eight inches off the floor, and you would lay down on your, on your left elbow, take this hand and dip the bread and eat that way, and so your feet would be out, sticking out, okay? And all of a sudden, this, the Bible calls her a sinner, and she comes in, and we know that somehow she probably already met Jesus before and was forgiven. But like many of us, Am I really forgiven? She struggled with it. I'm so bad. Would he really, really forgive me? Okay. And then it says that Simon, one of the Pharisees, the Bible actually says this. He thought within himself. If, if this Jesus this knew who the sinner, this wicked woman, who let her in? How'd she get in here? This is for preachers, not for wicked people like that. And then I love what it says next. Jesus answered him. He didn't say anything. Never think anything you don't want God to answer. Hey, Simon. There's a guy that had two people that owed him money. <clears throat> One owed him $50 and the other owed him $50,000. He forgave them both. Who do you think loved him the most? Well, probably the one, like 50,000. Yeah. And Simon, since I came in here, you treated me like nothing. You didn't greet me. You didn't say hi. You didn't give water. And since she's been here, she hasn't even stopped showing her grateful thankfulness, her love. To whom is forgiven much, loves much. And if you want to increase your love for God, then go get alone, get on your knees, go for a walk through the woods and say, God, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You still love me and I'm harsh with my wife. You still love me and I waste time on the stupid Facebook and Instagram and you still love me and I get so lazy, I'm out of control and you still love me. And if you realize how much he loves us, even though we are a bunch of bums, we're all a mess. Thank you, Lord. Oh. I hope you guys thank God for saving you every day. This is not just something for a 13-year-old kid. Every single one of us should have a good morning prayer. Good morning, Lord. Oh, 
I need you today. I can't do today without you. And thank you, by the way, for saving me. I didn't deserve it. I still don't. Thank you. Yeah. When you realize how wicked you are or how wicked you have the capability to be and God still loves us, wow. It'll increase your love. Put it this way. How about you guys getting caught online looking at something you shouldn't and your wife walks in the room. She cries. She gives you a hug, says, sweetheart, I know this is a struggle, but I'm going to love you and pray you through this. Whoa. That's what God does for us. He does. And what would you do to your wife, sweetheart? I don't deserve you. I don't deserve your love. God, I don't deserve your love. What does it mean to consider myself a chief of sinners? If you really, really believe that you're the chief of sinners, then whatever issues you face in your home or in your church, it's not the fault of anyone else. It's your fault. But my wife, she is, okay, then what perception am I giving that she thinks that I don't care or I'm not interested in that? If you really believe you're the chief of sinners then you won't throw blame everywhere else, okay? Understand who you are, who you were, and who you're capable of being. I want you guys to know, the more you get to know me, this is what I write to the kids, our staff in the summer, the more you get to know me, the more you admire my wife, okay? And they get to know me well. And, and I do ask for forgiveness when I get out of line. And, but the patience that Amber's had, Spurgeon said, too many think lightly of sin. And therefore, think lightly of the Savior. If your sin in your mind is no big deal, then the salvation and actually that Jesus died for that sin is no big deal. By denying our sin, we devalue grace. We are not better than other people. If we think we're better than other people, we're already in trouble. Because that's pride. And God resists the proud. He only gives grace to the humble. Admitting the gravity of my own depravity magnifies God's love, God's patience, God's forgiveness. And it moves me to depend more on him to allow his spirit to change the ugliness of my heart. Do you got that? I mean, I have to admit the gravity of my own depravity. I don't know everything. And I'm not spending my life running around telling everybody how bad they are when I'm not even recognizing my own sin. It goes back to Galatians 6.1. I cannot preach and I cannot counsel without realizing this could be me. Oh, Lord, please help me not to fall into that trap and help me to help the people who have to get out of that trap. It so motivates your heart till sin be bitter. Christ will not be sweet. Puritan Thomas Watson said, look, I know my sin and what I see seen in my own heart is darker and more awful. It's more proud, selfish, and self-exalting, and it's more consistently and regularly in rebellion against God than anything I have glimpsed in the heart of anyone else. As far as I can see, the biggest sinner I know is me. It's kind of what Paul was saying. Once I truly understand and admit my ugly, sinful heart, 
I am only then ready to magnify God's glory, rely, depend, trust on God's grace, and be consumed with God's gospel. My only hope, which I try to thank God for every day of my life. This is from the book, When Sinners Say I Do. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have cost me about in number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot even see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. I'm wicked. I need you, Lord. Once I know that I'm indeed the worst of sinners and others, oh, no longer my biggest problem, I am. How can I grow in my love for the Lord? Number three, practicing loving God and loving others more than you love you. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. Yeah. This is not hard. But if you want to increase in your love for God, You've got to set aside time to get to know him. And even if you've already been in the ministry for 25 years, start over. Start over like the end of Ephesians 5.1. Be therefore followers of God. Remember the last three words? As dear children. What do I mean by that? Kids are cool. What's your little girl's name? Seven-year-old. Alana. So Alana is seven, and uh, I think... What grade is she? Probably first grade or second grade? Second grade. Okay. It's interesting because I think second grade is probably the height of any of our mental achievements. I think it's downhill from second grade all the way on, okay? And I said that one time, and this teacher sent me some notes that her second grade class wrote to God. Dear God, I didn't think orange went well with purple till I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not have killed each other if they had their own rooms. That's what my mom did for me and my brother. (laughs) Dear God, I bet it's really hard to love everybody in the whole world. There's only four people in our family, and I'm having a hard time loving all of them. Dear God, I went to this wedding, and they kissed right in the church. Is that okay? (laughs) Dear God, of all the people who work for you, I like Noah and David the best. Dear God, I think about you sometimes even when I'm not praying. Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but I think you got confused because what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Why can little kids write notes like this to God? You know why? Because they're not like us. God to them is so real. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he what? He is. He is everything his precious word says he is. He is loving. He is holy. He is forgiving. He is the God of all gods. And is the rewarder of them that build a big church. He's the rewarder of them that everybody knows their name. He's the rewarder of them that what? Diligently seek him. There it is. How do you increase in your love for God? Make an effort to increase in your knowledge of God. Understand who you were, are, and capable of being, and then practice. Practice makes perfect, or the biblical term for perfection is maturity. Practice makes mature Christians.
be ye doers. We talk about what we think about and we think about what we love. Then we better increase in our love for God. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through these principles, I just, I, I, I do, I just wish I had more time to spend with you and just form my heart and and then we all get tired and then we get selfish and we, we can th- probably throw any excuse we want to out there. But just help us to love you more and to hate sin more. Help us to do that. And, and help us that even though we think we know a lot, maybe, because of years of preaching or teaching, to become like little children, start all over and get to know you in a new, fresh, wonderful way. I don't know the hearts of anyone in here. I know there's a lot of hurts. And I know we all have disappointments in our churches, in our families, in our lives. And yet you keep loving us, and you're going to get us through this, and someday we'll be in your presence, and thank you for what you've done for us. But from what you told us here, just, Lord, when we know that we always have one great big spiritual hug coming from you, because you do, you love us in spite of what we do. I pray that we'd almost be embarrassed that you love us so much and we love you so little. So I pray that you would, Lord, please burden our hearts. Help us to dig into Psalms to get to know you better. Help us to be part of our lives that at the end of this coming year, people would say, whoa, our pastor's been spending time with God. Our pastor's wife has been walking with God. And I pray that you'd help us do this. Thank you, Lord, for what we have learned this morning. Help us be doers and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray.